0: Welcome back to New Books of Military History. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. This is my second consecutive interview on a third book covering the conflict in Vietnam. And I'm very fortunate in that we've been joined today by the award-winning author, Max Boot, to talk about his current book, The Road Not Taken, Edward Lansdale and the American Tragedy in Vietnam. I've been intrigued by his career since the appearance of his book, The Savage Wars of Peace, in 2002. As many of you, I'm sure, do, continue to follow his editorial columns in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Foreign Policy. In addition to his writing, Max is also a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Max, thanks for joining us.
1: Delighted to be here.
0: Your previous book, Invisible Armies, was a grand history of irregular warfare, from early quagmires like Alexander the Great's Afghan wars to the still-smoldering Syrian Civil War. So I guess it's right to assume that sets you up for a second book on counterinsurgency, focusing on Edward Lansdale's career. But in saying that, could you share with us what exactly motivated you to pursue this sort of book right now?
1: Well, as you mentioned, I, I have written about uh, guerrilla warfare in the past. I had this book, Invisible Armies, which was a history of guerrilla warfare over 5,000 years. And I wrote a little bit in there about Edward Lansdale. And then so after that came out uh, in 2013, my editor at Norton, Bob Weil, and I sat down and, and discussed what should I do for an encore? What What's the next book? and uh, Bob suggested that I do a whole book on Edward Lansdale. I was initially skeptical because I took the position, well, I've already written about him. What more is there to say? But in fact, Bob's intuition was dead right, and I found a lot more... I could say, because I found a lot more new information about Edward Lansdale, including gaining access to the secret love letters that he wrote over many years to his longtime mistress and slash second wife, Pat Kelly, this woman he met when he went to the Philippines in 1945. And I also had access to the letters that he was writing, often simultaneously, to his first wife, Helen. And so I'm actually the first person after Ed Lansdale himself to have read both sets of correspondence, and combined with newly declassified documents, I have this unprecedented vantage point into his innermost thinking that previous writers and historians have not had. And so I'm able to present Ed Lansdale, who at one time was quite a famous figure, I'm able to present him in a way that he has not been before.
0: You know, personally I find biography to be a, a rather tricky methodology to work in as a historian. Because it's so easy, I think, to get drawn into drawn into close to the subject, while the nature of the genre also imposes the strictures of a chronological narrative to your own desires to convey broader meaning about the subject. How do you feel coming to a biography or a biographical approach rather after other more thematically oriented books?
1: I loved it because it really let me write about the complexities of one man's life and his, his struggles and, 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 and quirks and, you know, uh, to to write about uh, his his life and careers in advance, advanced, but also to hang a larger story on that personal narrative. And that's an approach that I've long admired when it's been done by people like Barbara Tuckman, for example, with her book on Vinegar Joe Stillwell and the American Experience on China, or by Neil Sheehan with his book on John Paul Vann in America in Vietnam. And that was kind of my model for this book, to use one man's life to tell a broader story. And Lansdale is a great subject uh, for a study of the Vietnam War, because he was there from the beginning in 1954 when he helped to create the state of South Vietnam right up through the Tet Offensive in 1968. And so I, I, really, I, I really enjoyed the process of biography and, and delving deep into his life uh, instead of covering this vast array of subjects as I've done in my previous books.
0: How and why does Edward Lansdale remain so relevant to us today? I mean, you know, why Lansdale? Why now?
1: I think Lansdale has a lot to teach uh, as we go forward. I mean, it's not only an intrinsically interesting story, but it's also one that with relevance for our present challenges. I mean, uh, Lansdale was somebody who spent his career battling communist insurgents in the Philippines and Vietnam. And today we are engaged in another great counterinsurgency, this time not against uh, communists, obviously, but against Islamist insurgents. And if you think about how are we going to win uh, the uh, the war on terror, uh, I, I would submit we're probably not going to do it with American combat troops. Uh, we're not going to send large numbers of American troops to occupy the greater Middle East. Been there, done that, tried it, didn't like it, probably not going to do it again anytime soon. So if we're not going to do it with American combat troops, how are we going to do it? I would submit with American advisors, these small teams of military intelligence and diplomatic personnel who fan out to these frontline states, and work with them uh, to, to battle our common enemies, much, much as we did recently against the Islamic State. And if you think about advisors, you have to think about Ed Lansdale, who is one of the most storied and successful advisors of the 20th century, right up there with T. Lawrence. So I think there are a lot of lessons from his life that you can take to apply uh, to the current struggle against terrorism.
0: Well, let's start at the beginning of Lansdale's career, even before that. How and why does Lansdale become an expert in counterinsurgency? I mean, there's nothing in his background that suggests this would happen.
1: He had a very unconventional background. He was certainly one of the most unusual generals in the history of the Air Force or really any other service. His background was in advertising. Before World War II, he was an ad man in L.A. and then San Francisco. uh, And then when the war broke out, Uh, He joined the OSS, America's first civilian intelligence agency, spent the war years at home uh, in the United States, interviewing travelers about these strange and wondrous places where uh, U.S. troops would shortly be landing in in North Africa and and the Pacific and showing himself to be a very good listener and and, and skilled interrogator. And then he uh, transferred to the Army and was sent by the Army to the Philippines in 1945. Uh, where he spent the next three years acquiring a minute knowledge of Philippine society. He became involved with this Filipino woman, Pat Kelly, who became the great love of his life and, and she served as an entree point for him to Filipino society. And he worked, you know, primarily as an intelligence officer for the Army, then transferred to the Air Force, worked as a public affairs officer, but he was really somebody who was delving deep into the culture of the Philippines. And then when he was sent when he went home uh, he uh, was assigned uh, for duty with a with a top secret intelligence agency called the Office of Policy Coordination, which would short, soon thereafter be folded into the CIA. And it was on behalf of the of the Office of Policy Coordination and then the CIA that he was sent back to uh, the Philippines in 1950 to deal with this burgeoning hook rebellion, this communist insurgency in the Philippines. And that's really when he got into the Uh, counterinsurgency business uh, masterminding the defeat of the hook rebellion without risking a single u.s soldier in battle
0: you know implicit in the title of the book is the idea that edward lansdale was a voice that was ignored at great peril and that he represents a path towards a different outcome perhaps in vietnam I've, i've got two observations on that first i mean it's not exactly a new trope or a new concept. It's, it sounds, traces me very familiar to what the case Neil Sheehan made, as you pointed out earlier, regarding John Paul Vann in his book, A Bright, Shining Line. I
1: think uh, Neil Sheehan made made a somewhat different case. I mean, I'm a uh, a big fan of his book, but I don't think he was making the case that John Paul Vann should have been listened to. I think his basic uh, case in that book was that uh, John Paul Van uh, was a fraud who lied about why he was drummed out of the army, and then his 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 personal fraudulence. Uh, was symbolic of the larger American fraud in our war effort in, in Vietnam. And and so I make a somewhat different point in, in, in my book. I, I don't think that Ed that was a fraud. I mean, he wasn't always right, but I don't I don't think he was a fraud. And I think he had some very valuable insights about the limitations of firepower in a counterinsurgency. He consistently counseled in Vietnam, we were not going to kill our way to victory, that General William S. Moreland was sorely mistaken. If he thought that uh, uh, we could kill the insurgents faster, and They can be replaced. And Lansdale counselled the only way we were going to prevail was to stand up a stable, legitimate, popular regime in Saigon that could win the support of the people. Uh, unfortunately, his advice was was ignored critically in 1963. Uh, when against his his warnings, the Kennedy administration went ahead and backed a military coup against No Dinh Diem, who was a friend and protege of Ed Lansdale. And then it was a very short line from there. Uh, uh, to the commitment of half a million American troops, again, against Ed Lansdale's advice. And so the, the the argument that I make in the book is that if Ed Lansdale had been listened to, that doesn't necessarily mean we would have won the war uh, because North Vietnam was going to be a formidable adversary under any circumstances with greater will to win than we had. But at the very least, even if we had still lost the war, the cost of defeat would have been much lower. We would not have lost 58,000 Americans. We would not have had millions of Vietnamese killed in the crossfire because Ed They'll never wanted to uh, fight this big unit conventional war in the first place.
0: Well, that brings me to the second point, then, which is whether the decision to step off on the journey that we're discussing, that is to say the Vietnam War, was the proper choice at all. I mean, like the fulcrum of decision in the Vietnam War was never really built around American power or influence, but around the political will of the Vietnamese people. So I, I guess maybe I'm asking is if the whole question of right or wrong roads is moot, says you know, at the end of the day, the outcome is being decided by the Vietnamese and not the Americans.
1: Well, that's certainly something that Ed Lansdale strongly believed in. He thought that – Uh, that the only way to prevail in Vietnam was to help the people of South Vietnam to help themselves. He thought they had to be in the front lines, that he thought it was a mistake to Americanize the war and send American combat troops in there. Uh, And, uh, you know, I think his his insights were valuable ones, Uh, uh, you know, basically realizing that we couldn't win the war for the South Vietnamese, but we could help them to prevail if we we did it right and, and we didn't do it right.
0: Well, let's step away from Vietnam and step back to talk about the Philippines. You know, I find it fascinating, you know, such an all-American looking type of guy with his prior career in advertising and who came into counterintelligence relatively late, was yet able to achieve such great success in resolving the hook by the Hopper insurgency in 1954. How did he manage to do this?
1: Well, he did it essentially uh, with uh, counterinsurgency uh, 101. I mean, he actually pioneered a lot of the concepts of what would become known as uh, counterinsurgency, a, a word that did not exist in the early 1950s. Uh, he, uh, His essential insight was that the Philippine army should use less force rather than more force. I mean, he told them that they are making a big mistake uh, by being so heavy handed by bombarding barrios with artillery and killing lots of innocent people and thereby driving more people into the, into the hook's arms. Uh, He suggested that the army needed to treat the people as brothers, uh, treat them with dignity and respect, win them over. And then once the people had confidence in the army, they would rat out the insurgents in their midst. So that was, a critical insight that would later become the basis of counterinsurgency doctrine, but Lansdale coupled that with a uh, with an appreciation for the importance of politics because. Uh, the the hook slogan was uh, bullets not ballots because people didn't trust the electoral process. The the elections were rigged by this feudal land-owning oligarchy. And so Lansdale wanted to restore faith in the political process. He enlisted Filipino civic organizations to safeguard the balloting process to make sure there was no fraud. And then he masterminded the presidential campaign in 1953 of his friend, the defense minister Ramon Magsaysay. who was a popular, honest reformer. Lansdale Uh, was his de facto behind-the-scenes campaign manager working on behalf of the CIA. And once Magsaysay won a smashing uh, landslide victory and was inaugurated as president, that was pretty much the end of the Hook Rebellion because now these poor farmers had no reason to continue fighting when they could redress their grievances through the political system. So that's that's essentially how Ed Lansdale delivered this unsung Cold War victory for the United States and did it without risking a single American soldier on the front lines.
0: Well, it's also, you know, my why- Well, as you said, it's also the matter of his mistress, Pat Kelly, the one love of his life. Um, It's a great story. I mean, you know, adds so much color and light to the narrative. But it's also this bittersweet note as well. You mentioned that Lansdale's first wife, Helen, knew of the affair. And, of course, later on, it was understood by people in his working life as well. But I, I wonder how that didn't prejudice his superior against his returning to the Philippines After 1948, strike me as it would run counter to, or at least it would be a distraction rather to any work that he was going to be doing.
1: I mean, I think his relationship with Pat Kelly was actually a strength for him because uh, it allowed him to understand Filipino society. She actually went to high school with some of the hook rebels and introduced him to, to some of the hooks. So I think she was she was an advantage for him. And oddly enough, even though this was the 1940s, it was arguably a less puritanical time uh, when, when having an adulterous relationship for an officer was not necessarily uh, as risky career-wise Uh, as it is today.
0: But there was the issue, again, of her being Filipino, which was a bigger issue then, perhaps, than today. Um,
1: I mean, conceivably. Again, I think things were a a bit more loosey-goosey in the 40s and 50s. There was a wartime imperative, so people couldn't necessarily stand on, on, you know, Regulations, um, uh, it, you know. I, I, so I don't think, you know, his his relationship with Pat Kelly wasn't a problem for him in the Philippines. It was an advantage. The problem for him was that he caused so much backlash uh, from Filipino politicians because he was so closely associated with mong Sai and the and, and the and the politicians on the other side, and the Liberal Party, uh, were out to get him, and, and they were irate that this american officer was helping uh this political figure ramon magsaysay to defeat them and that's really where the backlash against them occurred and there was strong pressure to pull him out and people in washington who agreed with that and thought he had overstepped his mandate so that was he was he was controversial because it was close association with ramon magsaysay not because it was association with pat kelly
0: well it's also i have to comment also on you know how you portray what what appears to be insubordination or at least willfulness that Lansdale displayed when he was stationed in Washington from 1949 to 1952. I mean, frankly, I'm amazed that he was able to get away with so much of his mild behavior without setting off numerous red flags, particularly among some of the more conspiratorially minded people at the time. Uh, and, of course, this is during the lavender scare that decimated the State Department's Asian office and the heyday of Joseph McCarthy. How did he manage to avoid this type of attention?
1: Well, he was he was n- undoubtedly uh, insubordinate. He was a maverick. He was a troublemaker. He did not hesitate to clash with generals and ambassadors who got in his way. And ultimately, mm-hmm. uh, you know, th- those, those disputes would prove his undoing because— he made war uh, against the bureaucracy so relentlessly that eventually the bureaucracy made war on him, and that would uh, cut short his Pentagon career. But it also, his, his willingness to, to buck the bureaucracy also enabled him to achieve uh, stellar results between 1950 and 1956, and he was able to get away with it in large part uh, because he had the support of CIA Director Alan Dulles, who, of course, okay. became a very powerful figure in President Eisenhower's Washington because he was the brother of Secretary of State John Foster Dulles. And so the Dulles brothers were really the kingmakers in, in Eisenhower's administration, and they backed up at Lansdale all the way because they saw him as a kind of can-do covert action operative who needed to be given his freedom. Uh, to work his magic, and so they were willing to back him up when he got into disputes with generals and ambassadors. That would not be true in the 1960s, and then he would uh, prove much less effective during the Johnson administration because he would not have that kind of high-level support.
0: Well, by the end of 1954, Lansdale's being feted all throughout the Washington intelligence establishment. I mean, he's the man who saved the Philippines. Did this phrase make his job harder? going forward into into china and latin america i think
1: there's no doubt that um you know the the growing reputation that lansdale achieved by the late 1950s when he was said to be the model for both the quiet american as well as the positive character and the ugly american that growing reputation uh was a double-edged sword Uh, on the one hand Uh, A lot of people were very impressed by him, including President Kennedy when he came into office. On the other hand, there were an awful lot of bureaucrats in the State Department, CIA, and Pentagon who were very envious and distrustful of him and eager to cut him down to size. And uh, initially... Uh, He was in great favor with the Kennedy administration, uh, but then uh, he was given this impossible assignment to run Operation Mongoose to overthrow Fidel Castro, and he was not able to achieve uh, this result uh, because it was unachievable. Uh, But once, once he failed with Operation Mongoose, he lost the favor of the Kennedys, and as a result of that, he was left naked before his uh, bureaucratic enemies. And finally, all these rivalries uh, that had festered during the course of his career uh, came back to haunt him in a big way.
0: Well, let's take a to Saigon. And um, he arrives right during the, the period after uh, the Geneva Accords and um, the partition of, of Indochina. He arrives at the moment when Ngo when Ziem is um, He's really struggling to establish a government, or legitimacy, I should say. What was the greater challenge for him when he arrived in Saigon? Was it reconciling himself with ZM or was it reconciling himself with the French, who were still in Indochina?
1: he had an awful lot of challenges when he arrived in Saigon in the summer of 1954. I mean, it was nothing but one challenge after another because he was supposed to create a uh, non-communist state in South Vietnam, uh, but – uh, and, and he aligned himself with No Dinh Ziem, the newly appointed Prime Minister of South Vietnam, in order to do that but it wasn't easy to get close to ZM, and ZM was not a natural politician, unlike Ramon Magsaysay he was a, you know, Diem was a kind of a reclusive scholarly Mandarin, so that was a big obstacle uh, the fact that ZM had all these enemies, including not only the communists but also the French, these various religious sects that had tens of thousands of militia fighters under arms and then finally the fact that Lansdale himself was new to Vietnam in the summer of 1954 uh, because You know, his great success in the Philippines from 1950 to 1953 had been set up uh, because he had been in the Philippines for three years prior to that and really understood the country. Uh, And even though he only spoke English, it wasn't a big problem in the Philippines where the elite also spoke English, but it turned out to be a much bigger problem in in Vietnam where the elite spoke French or Vietnamese. So he had to work through a translator. He didn't really understand this country at first and it, it took him a while. I mean, gradually he gained a very good understanding of Vietnam, but, you know, It was was nothing but one difficulty after another. So the fact that despite all that, he was able to help ZM consolidate power uh, was fairly impressive and unexpected.
0: Did he depend too much on local warlords who may have adopted dual allegiances?
1: No, I don't think that's true. I mean he was – he certainly was eager to cut deals with warlords to get them to back CM, but he was – that was all in the service of trying to establish central authority. And uh, when in the spring of 1955, he uh, urged uh, CM to send the South Vietnamese Army into the streets of the capital – uh, to break the hold of one of these sects, uh, the Bin Zuyen, uh, this criminal network that had uh, thousands of armed fighters in, in Saigon, Lansdale urged CM uh, uh, to take decisive military action against them because he understood that you couldn't have a functioning state if you had different private armies running around.
0: Well, you also note that Lansdale did have significant moral objections towards supporting authoritarians like CM just because they suited American anti-communist needs. And that given his preferences, he wanted to work within the, the boundaries of representative government. But it's not really feasible, though, in South Vietnam. By the time you introduce Lansdale's objections, hadn't he already gone too far down the road of supporting the CM? I mean, there really wasn't any alternative, though.
1: That's true. And, and Lansdale uh, was not trying to foment an alternative to CM because he thought that CM, for all his autocratic tendencies, was the least bad alternative that there was, a judgment that I think was vindicated after Lansdale, after ZM was overthrown in 1963. What Lansdale did try to do, at least when he was in Vietnam, 54 to 56, was to try to curb ZM's autocratic tendencies, to get him to rule in more consensual and open fashion, uh, to reach out to uh, political adversaries and the people of South Vietnam. And he had mixed success doing that. But at least you know some moderate degree of success, and then after he left, uh, Ziem fell under the influence of his conspiratorial fascist brother No Denu and moved in a more dictatorial direction. Uh, Lansdale tried to get back to uh, to Vietnam and to influence uh, Ziem in a more positive way once again, but he couldn't do it because he was blocked by his political adversaries in Washington, and so. Uh, you know it was that, that set the stage for this fatal confrontation in 1963 where you had the Buddhist uprising against the m, which he dealt with uh, in, in fairly heavy-handed fashion and that convinced the Kennedy administration that he had to go.
0: Well let's move ahead to after 1961 And as, as you said the stage you talk about the Kennedy administration. What was the greater challenge? Speaking truth to power in the person of John Fitzgerald Kennedy? or dealing with his administration.
1: Lansdale's biggest challenge was dealing with his own boss, uh, Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara, because by this point he had left the CIA and was working as a senior policy official at the Pentagon. And uh, Lansdale and McNamara were two very different types who did not get along at all. Uh, McNamara had come to the Defense Department from running the Ford Motor Company, graduate of the harvard business school and uh, i should note also my alma mater uc berkeley mcnamara was this very academically bright guy he loved systems analysis loved numbers thought computers held the key to all meaning uh lansdale not so academically bright ucla dropout uh, but he had spent some time in years in fact in southeast asia and understood uh unconventional conflict and so he when when McNamara first took office uh Lansdale tried to begin his education in this new war just breaking out in in South Vietnam. He'd just been to South Vietnam, and he brought back with him some captured Viet Cong weapons, uh, some very simple rifles and pistols and stakes all covered in mud and blood, walked into McNamara's office and dumped this load of weapons on McNamara's immaculate desk. And he said, you know, Mr. Secretary, these are the weapons that are being used by our enemies in, in Vietnam. They're not very sophisticated. And the people using these weapons, he wouldn't even recognize them as soldiers. They wear black pajamas and rubber sandals, uh, but they're licking the soldiers on our side who are armed with all the best equipment that the U.S. can provide because these Viet Cong, they have the power of an ideal. And the only way we're going to beat them is if there is a more powerful ideal on our side. We're not going to bomb this revolution into oblivion. Now, in hindsight, that seems like pretty wise advice, but McNamara was invincibly armored in his ignorance and arrogance and chose to disregard what Ed Lansdale had to say.
0: The question I have next is regarding Lansdale's service with, with regards to Cuba. And it's not so much about Lansdale as it is about Kennedy. And I'm wondering if you think that Kennedy was had become so preoccupied with Cuba that he failed to take the proper steps in South Vietnam, particularly with regard to perhaps a senior appointment for Lansdale as ambassador or in another role.
1: Well, I you, I mean, there's there may be some truth in that. I mean, certainly, uh, Lansdale found himself put on the on the Cuba problem, which was really not his. Strong suit. I mean, he didn't have any particular background in Latin America or Cuba, no particular understanding of Cuban society. Uh, and yet this was the top priority for the Kennedys uh, because they wanted to avenge the humiliation of the Bay of Pigs debacle in the first year of the Kennedy administration. And so they gave that job to Lansdale, and it was pretty obvious that he that they would have been better advised to send Lansdale to Saigon, possibly as U.S. ambassador, or in some other role in a country that he really understood where he had close connections with CM. But instead they were using – they were trying to fit this uh, – uh, uh, you know, this square peg into a round hole, and it, it just didn't fit.
0: I just can't help but wonder, you know, how things might have been different in 1963 had Lansdale been ambassador.
1: Exactly. I mean,
0: certainly wouldn't exactly.
1: have gone Right, exactly. And, in fact, uh, Walt Rostow, uh, who was, a you know, a senior national security official in, in the Kennedy administration and then became national security advisor under Lyndon Johnson, subsequently said that, you know, the failure to send Ed Lansdale uh, to, back to Saigon in the early 60s represented kind of the last best chance uh, for a better outcome in Vietnam uh, that did not involve large numbers of American casualties.
0: What is the X factor? And what does it tell us about U.S. failure in Vietnam?
1: This is another uh, confrontation that Lansdale and McNamara had where uh McNamara called Lansdale into his office and said, you know what, I need help uh, because I am trying to uh, come up with a set of of mathematical equations to understand what's going on in in, in the Vietnam War. And I'd like your help with it. Uh, And Lansdale said, well, that's fine, Mr. Secretary, but don't forget the X factor. And McNamara started writing on his graph paper X factor, and he said, great, tell me what's the X factor? How do I calculate it? And uh, Lansdale told him, well... Unfortunately, Mr. Secretary, uh, you can't calculate it because the X factor is the feelings of the population about how they want to be governed. It's the most important factor of all, but you can't reduce it down to numbers. And again, I I think a pretty wise insight, uh, but one that McNamara also chose to ignore because uh, instead of taking on board what Lansdale had to say, he just assumed that Lansdale was an idiot who didn't understand the higher mathematics that McNamara was, was, was employing and just dismissed him
0: to analytical side certainly didn't serve him well throughout his tenure as, as yeah, at, uh, he
1: was uh, he was uh, smart but not wise he was uh, clever but but had bad judgment
0: well the story of Lansdale's increased marginalization after 1964 really does parallel America's failing mission in Vietnam you you mentioned of course that he didn't get along well. With Johnson or, or members of his administration, who were the same people from the Kennedy administration, why did Johnson, though, fail to pick up on Lansdale's message? I mean, was it a matter of cognitive dissonance on Johnson's part, or was it just too late? By the well, you
1: we could remember? certainly make the case that uh, for the true Lansdalean approach to work, it had to be before 1963. That after ZM was overthrown, uh, there was. So much destabilization in South Vietnam, with one uh, with one military coup following another, uh, that you know, and in, in dispatch of American forces. Uh, so, with half a million American troops in Vietnam, Lansdale became an increasingly marginalized figure. Uh, you know. He couldn't affect this massive American military commitment. You know, part of the problem was that La- that Lyndon Johnson just was not interested in what he had to say. Uh, Lansdale's foremost champion in the Johnson administration was Vice President Hubert Humphrey. Uh, who, was, who was a big fan, uh, but Johnson didn't listen to Humphrey when it came to the Vietnam War. He thought that Humphrey was this muddle-headed liberal uh, and not, not tough enough to deal with these wily communists. And, and so Johnson deferred to the generals who wanted to bomb North Vietnam and send troops to South Vietnam. And as a result of that, uh, Lansdale was increasingly sidelined as, as the 1960s went along.
0: What happens to Ed Lansdale after he returns home to the U.S. in 1968?
1: Lansdale uh, left Vietnam in the summer of 1968, a few months after the Tet Offensive, and and retired. Uh, He he hoped to have some kind of role in the Nixon administration uh, because uh, he had worked with a known uh, Dick Nixon going back to the 1950s, and Nixon had been a big supporter of his work in the Philippines and Vietnam in the 50s. But it was not to be. Henry Kissinger, the National Security Advisor, did not want any rivals uh, for uh, his control uh, of the foreign policy, and of course, Lansdale was notorious for being a maverick who did not take orders. Pretty much the last person that Henry Kissinger would ever allow into the Nixon administration, so he had no role in the Nixon administration, and. Just, you know, basically uh, retired to, to Northern Virginia. Uh, the You know, there were a couple more dramas in his life. One after his first wife died. I mean, there was a number of dramas, actually. One occurred with the release of the Pentagon Papers by his former protege, Dan Ellsberg. Uh, a lot of which implicated Ed Lansdale uh, because, uh, it, you know, a lot of the Pentagon papers were about Lansdale's activities in Vietnam in the 50s, uh, thereby uh, bringing him into the public eye again. Uh, he was brought into the public eye yet again in 1975 when he had to testify before the church committee investigating the intelligence Uh, community in in assassination plots, and Lansdale had to testify about his role in the Operation Mongoose to overthrow Castro, and that was an embarrassing and and painful period. And then finally, his wife died in the the early 70s, but not long after that happened, Pat Kelly, his longtime, his former mistress, uh, who had by that point retired from the U.S. Embassy in Manila, had never remarried. Pat Kelly moved to the United States. And uh, she and Ed Lansdale got married on July 4th, 1973 and lived happily ever after until Lansdale's own demise for natural causes in 1987. So Lansdale, you know, had a... He, He really ended his life in professional failure, watching uh, the state of South Vietnam be destroyed in 1975, very painful for him. A lot of his friends became refugees. He tried to help them come to the United States. But at least in his personal life, he did find a measure of happiness uh, with Pat Kelly.
0: I wonder what he made of the anti-war sentiment when he got home. I mean, he, of course, as somebody who... uh, worked in traffic in public opinion in uh in perception in you know the 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 strategic spaces in between action you know what what did he make of of the way that the anti-war movement had grown he
1: was not uh especially sympathetic to the anti-war movement uh he objected to the way that they were willing to write off South Vietnam and and to and to romanticize uh, Ho Chi Minh and the communists. But Lansdale wasn't particularly sympathetic to the hawks either because he objected to their conceit that if we could just use more firepower, we would win the war, even though we actually dropped more bombs in Vietnam than we had in, in all of World War II. So he was kind of an outlier in the, in the political process. He was neither hawk nor dove, yes. uh, and, and, and rather different from his protege, Dan Ellsberg, who went from being a super hawk when he worked for Lansdale in Vietnam in '65. To becoming the super dove who eventually leaked the Pentagon papers, Lansdale kind of occupied a third point uh, on the political spectrum that you know w- was not a was not a common position at all.
0: Yeah, the yeti really is a lonely and tragic figure who. Um the lesson I, what I always learned about believed about Lansdale, was influenced by Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers.
1: Yeah. Well, I actually talked to.
0: Well, know, a great yeah. Yeah. For
1: I mean, I actually talked to Dan Ellsberg about Ed Lansdale uh, a few years ago at, at Ellsberg's home in the in the Bay Area. And, uh, you know, he told me that he loved Ed Lansdale and loved him still. He still had tremendous respect for Lansdale. Uh, very interesting conversation. One of the points that Ellsberg made is that a lot of people took Lansdale for being kind of this simpleton who spouted raw, rah American slogans and didn't really understand the deeper dynamics of Vietnamese society. And what Ellsberg said is, yes, that's how he came across in public, but in private, he was actually a much more sophisticated, nuanced, and realistic observer. And I think that that, that tallies completely with what I read from Ed Lansdale's private papers, his letters, and, and official documents. Uh, he was very clear-eyed about what was going on in Vietnam and understood very early on that the U.S. strategy was not going to work, but he felt compelled to keep up a stiff upper lip in public and, you know, uh, dutifully support the war effort and that caused correspondents like David Halberstam and Neil Sheehan and Stanley Carnell to write him off as being this this kind of uh, dummy, this ad man, con man, what have you, and th- that helped to uh, to stain his historical reputation.
0: going to touch upon something we addressed earlier in the interview, uh, getting compelled to ask it again. What lessons should we take for the story of Edward Lansdale?
1: I think there's a lot of lessons you can take. I think the big one is about the primacy of politics and warfare. Uh, Ed Lansdale was one of the few people who took seriously Ed Clausewitz's insight that war is a continuation of politics by other means. That's something a lot of military people pay lip service to, but at the end of the day, uh, there's often an assumption that we can actually win just through firepower alone, whether it's kind of the massive firepower and b 52 raids of the Vietnam War or the more precisely targeted drone strikes uh, of today. Uh, But in either case, uh, we often fall prey to this illusion that there is a kinetic military solution uh, to our, uh, our counterinsurgency problems and Lansdale did not believe that at all. He always preached that you were not going to be successful in the long term unless you had a political solution that you had to foster a government that the people could support. He was ignored in Vietnam and, and I think uh, you know we paid a price for ignoring him and uh, I think We've been more cognizant of the government in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, but it's still, at the end of the day, I think we've tended to, uh, for uh, in, in many instances, not always, but in many instances, to think that we can just win uh, by killing insurgents. And we've certainly tried that approach in places like Somalia and Syria and Libya and elsewhere where we really have not had a political game plan to go along with our – special operations raids and drone strikes and all the rest of it. And I think pretty consistently we've seen that, uh, you know, while we can kill insurgents, we can't eliminate insurgencies. And the only way to do that is is by having a, a, a plan uh, uh, for, uh, you know, fostering effective states. And that's something we don't like to do, but it's something that Lansdale told us we needed to do. And I think recent events vindicate his warnings.
0: You know, one last thing I, I walk away with from reading the book too, is the, the importance of empathy for anybody who would be engaged in counterinsurgency. And certainly, I mean, I think that was one of his strengths is that he was able to understand not only the needs of the people in the countries where he operated and who he worked with, but also, he, he understood his foes as well. And um, it just strikes me as very sad that we don't seem to have that same amount of empathy, or we don't have anybody present now with that sort of strategic empathy what
1: I'm That's exactly right. Lansdale really mobilized emotional intelligence and sent it marching into battle. His ability to forge fast friendships with people like Ramon Magsaysay and No Dinh Diem enabled the US to achieve its objectives in the Philippines and Vietnam at least for a time and subsequently our our The inability of of his successors to get along with no Yam crippled our ability to be effective without combat troops, and we've had similar travails in recent years with Hamid Karzai in Afghanistan, Nuri al-Maliki in Iraq, and those are two— two more recent allies that, we've, that we that we got into very contentious relationships with that undercut our ability to achieve our objectives in Iraq and Afghanistan. And that really shows that we need more Ed Lansdale's. We need an army of Ed Lansdale's, people who can be very empathetic, very knowledgeable about local societies, and can influence local leaders in a very constructive direction so that we don't need to send large numbers of troops. We can just rely on, on these very skilled advisors.
0: We're closing in on the end of our interview, Max, and... We have a couple of customary final questions that we ask our guests. Um, first, what are you reading these days that you might recommend or share with our audience? And then second, what's next for you? Um, what's the next project?
1: Uh, good questions, all. Uh, let's see. What am I reading these days? Let's let's open up my Kindle here and see what's, what's on my Kindle because I'm traveling so much okay. for – uh, doing my book tour, that I rely mainly on on my Kindle these days uh, rather than...
0: It's, a, it's a, lot a lot lighter to travel, to travel with. with
1: um, I've been reading this novel, uh, Red Sparrow, by Jason Matthews, former CIA officer, the basis of a new movie. I've been reading this book, Prairie Fires, The American Dream of Laura Ingalls Wilder. Very interesting book. Uh, I've been... Uh, Reading some of the short stories of Somerset Maugham, which I, I've read in the past, and also I recently read uh, *The Goldfinch* by Donna Tart, a novel that I had not read before, and then also uh, *The Billion Dollar Spy* by David Hoffman. Uh, so that's been also, and uh, Max Perkins, editor of *Genius* by by A. Scott Berg. So those have been a few of my. Uh, the recent books that I've read or am reading. Um, And then you were also asking what's next for me. And in fact, uh, when I signed up to do uh, this book on Ed Lansdale, I also signed at the same time to do a book on Ronald Reagan. And so I've been doing a little bit of work on Ronald Reagan on the sidelines of my current project. And my intention is that once my book tour is over to turn my attention full time, uh, to working on Ronald Reagan.
0: I have to ask, is that going to be a general political biography, or are you going to be looking more at his uh, his vision of the no. world and America? No, place? the
1: intention is to do a, just a, a straight, cradle-to-grave biography, because I don't think there's a great... Uh, biography of, of President Reagan so far, and so I—that's that, my objective. But it's, you know, it's, it's an ambitious one. I will be the first to admit.
0: Well, Max Boot, thank you very much for taking the time to join us at New Books of Military History.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed our conversation.
0: And, and to all of our listeners, this is your host Bob Wintermute signing off. Thank you all for listening.